We come this morning to the seventh of the 12 minor prophets. The minor prophets, as we have, when we began this series, are not minor because they're not important. They are important, they're minor just because they are shorter than most of the prophets, the major prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And we are at the seventh of the 12, and this is the book of Naaman. And as we come to this book, um, we see here um, what I've entitled The Avenging Wrath of God. This book is a heavy, a heavy book, and it, it speaks about the fact that God is a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment, of vengeance, and it begins from the very get-go making this known. And uh, this is an important aspect for us to know and understand about our God, that he is a God who is holy, who is just, and is a God of wrath, and will take vengeance upon unrepentant, rebellious sinners. As we look uh, today at this book, we're going to see the wrath of God that is focused upon the nation of Assyria and the capital, which is Nineveh. And uh, we see that God observes and he knows what's going on in this world. He's not disconnected. You might wonder, does God know about what uh, Vladimir Putin is doing? Is he aware of what uh, the, the president, uh, the dictator of North Korea is doing? Well, yes, we learn today that God is very much aware and God will make people to give an account, not just of kings, but of all of us, we have an account, a God who knows us, a God who will bring judgment against all who sin against him. And so we begin here just today with an overview of this book, and we see, first of all, Nahum, the man and his times. And like many of the prophets, we find that he is, there's not much that we know about him. We have no family lineage. We don't know who his father was. Uh, he's from a town, Elkosh, which... It's uncertain where this is. There are four different views that are given. Most believe that it is in southern Judah. And uh, so he lived in Judah and is familiar with uh, the southern uh, kingdom of, of Judah. And he's like the not-so-famous Amos. Um, we just don't know much about him. And that's true of many of the prophets. And that's rightly so because... They want their message to be heard. The focus is upon the God who has sent them to preach the word. They're like John the Baptist. I always love his statement that as he thought of being the forerunner of Christ, he must increase and what? I must decrease. And that should be true of us as believers as well. We desire that Christ would be displayed in our life. G, uh, Paul, in the, the writing to the Philippians, said, for me to live is Christ. I want Christ to be known. I want Christ to be seen in my life. So, again, little known about the man. But one thing we do learn from him is that he had a high view of God. He spoke very sternly, very strongly um, concerning God and the judgment that is to come. And he did not reframe or pull back from that. So the times in which he lived, we see in verse 1 that this is an oracle or a vision concerning Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the, the nation of Assyria at this time. 
You remember when we looked at Jonah, Jonah went to Nineveh. He preached there about a little over 100 years before this book was written and before this ministry of Nahum. And uh, it is during the time of the reign of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire dominates the world scene at this time. Um, Many believe that this Assyrian Empire is the first great, what we might call, world empire of the world of that day. And uh, so this is the time in which he is living. And the the Assyrian um, nation had conquered surrounding nations. Assyria and Nineveh were up where modern-day Iraq is at. But they had uh, taken over much of Asia Minor, Minor, up in the area of Turkey, down through Israel, and down even to northern um, Egypt. And so it was a vast empire that stretched far and wide. It was a very powerful empire. It was a power to be reckoned with. And it was also notorious for its ruthless kings and the treatment of conquered peoples. There are kings like Sennacherib and Ashurbanipal, his grandson, who were, who were ruthless. They were terrors. Um, Mark Dever said the Assyrians were what Joseph Stalin only aspired to be. And that, that makes a pretty strong statement there. But they were ruthless with those that they conquered. They often impaled bodies on wood stakes They stacked up pyramids made of skulls of people that they conquered. They dismembered many of the people that they captured. But this is the Assyrian uh, nation of the day, and its capital was Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was considered to be almost impregnable. It was up on the Tigris River, up again in the area of Iraq, across from modern-day Mosul, and uh, It was a great city. We saw that when we were in Jonah. In Jonah, we are told that it was an exceedingly great city. It was uh, fortified by huge walls. There was an inner wall that many said was as high as 100 feet, and you could drive three chariots abreast on, on top of it. Then there was another wall surrounding that wall, and outside of that wall was a moat that was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. And so many believed that this city was, was again, just impregnable. You You could never defeat this nation. And for 50 years, it was the largest and most powerful city of the time, of the world of that time. And yet... The message of this man, Naaman, was that this city is going to fall. This empire is going to fall. And he foretells it here in his book. We get a pretty good idea of the date and the time in which Nahum ministered. Um, Just to review where we've been in the past, 931 B.C. was the date in which Israel was divided. There was the north and the south. There was a division among the people of God. In the north was Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. In the south, Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. And then uh, the north fell to the Assyrians in the year 722. And if you remember Jonah, he ministered just prior to this. 
He was foretelling and calling the people of Nineveh to repent, reluctantly doing that, if you remember. But it finally did fall to the Assyrians. Uh, there was a revival in the day of Jonah, but it was a short-lived revival. Uh, they repented of their repentance, and they tur- returned back to their ruthless ways and ungodly ways, and God brought judgment upon Samaria and the people of Israel in 722. And then in 633, there was the fall of Thebes, which is in northern Egypt. And it's mentioned here in chapter 3 and verse 8. And history tells us that the time in which it fell to the Assyrians as they made their way down into North Africa was in the year 633. And that has already happened according to the book of Nahum. And then we also know through history that the fall of Nineveh took place in 612 B.C. But this has not yet happened. In fact, Nahum is speaking about the destruction of the city of Nineveh. It's going to come down. The Assyrian nation is going to fall, but that has not yet taken place. And so Nahum is ministering somewhere between 633 and 612, and it's probably closer to 612 because it seems, as you read through the book, that this judgment is just about to come. God is standing at the door, you might say, and judgment is about to fall upon this nation that almost seems to be impregnable. And so um, this is the times in which he ministered. And as he ministered, it probably was very hard for the people of Judah to imagine the destruction of Assyria because it was such a formidable enemy. Now, Jerusalem had not been sacked. They tried to overrun uh, Jerusalem, but God preserved them. Uh, He killed 185,000 Assyrians when they were threatening the city of Jerusalem. But they had made their presence known in Judah. There were 50 cities that had been destroyed uh, and taken captive by the Assyrians. And so for this man, Nahum, to speak about the judgment of Assyria was to them probably, yeah, we'll see, you know, because it was such a powerful nation at this time. And it would have been hard for them to conceive of this. And what a change it brought about in a very short period of time. This very powerful empire, uh, one of its last greatest kings was Ashurbanipal. And Ashurbanipal was uh, a ruthless king. And he was, he was notorious for his wickedness. Um, but 14 years after he died, he died in 626, Fourteen years after that, this great Assyrian capital fell, Nineveh fell. It was destroyed. And what we have in the book of Jonah, it is telling of these things that are going to come in very graphic language. It's very poetical, and it is describing the invasion of the capital city of Nineveh, especially in chapter 2, it envisions uh, Outsiders, this coalition of nations that will come against this city, and will it will fall? It will fall to their uh, to these forces. Chapter two, we get a picture of this. Verse four: the chariots race madly through the streets; they rush to and fro through the squares; they gleam like torches. 
they dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. And notice verse 6. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. And history tells us, as we look back into history, that there was flooding that took place at this time. And these flood, uh, this moat that they had, and they were right on the Tigris River, this caused many of the walls to, to uh, fall in, and this allowed this coalition of armies to come in and to take them captive, and the city would fall. And uh, it fell, and uh, there, were, there was, for many, many years, the city was even unknown where it was. It wasn't until 18... 54 that they began excavations and they found the ruins of the city of Nineveh. It was said of Alexander the Great when he was making his sweep, uh, his world empire, that as he was crossing in this very area, he marched by not knowing that a world empire was buried under his feet. So here's this great city that seemed impregnable. God's judgment would come upon it. It would fall and... uh, and so this is what the book of Habakkuk or Nahum is about. We want to look at his message. The message of Nahum is a weighty and, and often an unpopular message of God's avenging wrath. You remember how we ended Micah last week, verse 18, the very last verses? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? And passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. What a contrast we have here as this book opens. Notice the heavy message that this man is giving. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And we we ended Micah with these wonderful truths about God, that he is this forgiving and pardoning God who is like unto this one, who shows favor to his remnant, to his people. He delights in steadfast love. And then we read these heavy words of judgment, of wrath. A lot of people think, well, I like the God of Micah, but I don't know if I like the God here that Naaman is speaking about. And there are a lot of people like that. You know, they are troubled by the thought of God being a vengeful God, that he will judge sin, that he is a God of wrath. But this, in fact, is what we find in the scriptures. And this is, this is not a God that has a split personality. Th- these are truths, these are attributes of who God is that work gloriously together. He is a holy and a just God. He is a God of wrath, but he is also a God of grace and mercy and is long-suffering. And so we, we don't try to separate these things. These are all true of our God. So as we think about here, 
God as being a God of wrath, this all comes under the umbrella, we might say, that he is holy, that God is just. When we talk about justice, justice is giving a person what he or she is due, what we deserve. It is something that is merited. When I do something wrong, justice says I need to pay. There's a penalty for what I have done wrong. When we talk about grace, grace is not merited. Grace is freely bestowed. It's undeserved. But justice is something that is deserved. And so justice is giving a person what is their due. They're just desserts, we might say. And again, this is often unpopular. I've spoken to people over the years. They said, you know, I just cannot, I cannot believe in the God of the Old Testament. I mean, there's a lot of wrath and judgment there, and I just can't accept that. Think of the cities of, the, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed by fire. We think of the flood in the day of Noah. We think of God's judgment in many ways. And I just, people say, I, I could never believe in the God of the Old Testament. But we find, we find in the New Testament too, don't we, that Jesus had a lot to say about judgment, about judgment that is to come. And so we cannot separate these things, that God is a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment to those who are rebellious and, and unrepentant. But he is also a God of mercy and of grace. And so on the human level, we, we don't really have any trouble with this, do we? When we talk about justice just on the human level, even children at a young age, they, they have a sense of justice. One of the first things that children, one of the first words that children learn is the word what? No. No. Yeah. If you have trouble believing in uh, you know, the fall of the human race and the passing on of a sinful nature to wait till you have children. And very early they learn to say no. And they go astray from the womb telling what? Lies. You don't have to teach them that. But when they're able to put a full sentence together and they're playing with their brother or their sister and they do something wrong to them, what they will often say is, that's not what? Fair. That's not right. And you know, that doesn't change as we get older. We see things going on in our country, don't we? And things that we say, that is not right. We, we've seen what uh, Putin is doing to Ukraine, and, and we all say, well, that's, that's not right. There are innocent people that are being killed, and the, this is not right. We see on our TVs of people just going into stores in the middle of the day and just robbing them and running out with armful, uh, armfuls load, a load of, of goods. And we think, that's not right. That's not fair. That's not just. So we know what that is. And I would suggest to you, when we say that, someone just told me this week that somebody had cut in line in front of them and how they had to be patient with that and not get angry. But when that happens, we don't like that, do we? We th that's not fair. And when we say that, there is something of the image of God that is being reflected in us because we have been created in the image of God, haven't we? And even though sin has 
deformed that in many, many ways. There are still remnants of the image of God in all of us. And this is one place where we see it. When we say that's not fair, we are saying there is such a thing as right and wrong. And you, stopped, you stepped over the line here. That's not right what you did. So we see this in the world in which we live. And uh, we are glad, we are glad that we can call 911 when there are problems, when there are police that can come and intervene, when people do things that are wrong. It's the craziest thing to think that we would defund the police. We need police, don't we? And so on the horizontal plane, we rejoice when we see people that are violent offenders when they get their day in court and, and justice is meted out to them. Or we, we can think back about 9-11. We can think about Osama bin Laden. There was rejoicing in the streets, wasn't there? when he was taken out. And when this happens, there's a sense that justice is being carried out. Look, the, look at the last verse of this book. Look how it ends. Speaking of Nineveh, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. There's rejoicing in the day in which Nineveh falls when the Assyrian kingdom falls. And so on the human level, we understand justice. And we, we, we are glad to see justice when it is carried out, when a judge does his job. Well, it shouldn't be hard for us then to think of the God in whose image we have been made is a God who is just, a God who must judge sin, a God who says, that's not right. That is a violation of my law. There is to be an accounting. And that's what we find in the Bible, that God is not somebody that just sweeps sin under the carpet, doesn't care about it. No, he's a God who will judge sin. He's a God who takes into account uh, sinners. And so in these verses, Nahum presents to us this God who is, who is a jealous God. He's jealous for his own namesake, his own holiness. He is jealous for his people, even as a husband would be jealous for his wife. He is jealous for his people or anyone that would do harm to them. He is then an avenging God. An avenging God. He emphasizes that in this verse. The Lord is an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He is a judge. He will judge. He will not let sin go unpunished. That's what we want a judge to do, don't we? We get upset when a judge doesn't do his job. And God is a judge who will take vengeance. He will bring judgment, and this is greatly emphasized here. Sometimes that judgment is even delegated in the Old Testament. You remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, it talks about those who were blood avengers, avengers of blood. If someone killed your relative, a family member, the Old Testament Mosaic law said that there was to be the nearest of kin was to be the blood avenger. 
someone in cold blood or premeditated or out of anger killed your family member, you had the responsibility then to take the blood of that person. So you were the blood avenger. And this, again, was a bringing about judgment. Romans 13.4 tells us that the civil authorities are God's ministers to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So God has ordained government as a means of keeping sin in check. Now imagine you don't have police, you don't have a government to do that. Then there is going to be anarchy, chaos. Um, And even with broken and corrupt governments, there is a sense of civility, not in all cases. But it is just God's common grace from keeping sin from just uh, overwhelming a, a nation. Deuteronomy 32, 41, I will render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me. God is an avenging God. He will bring into account the sins of all who have rebelled against him. Paul tells us that we are not to take vengeance ourselves. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I'll repay. There's a day coming, a day of judgment, and I will repay. And as believers, we're able to step back and say, okay, God, I'll leave that to you. You will be a better judge of that than I will. And so he is a God of wrath, a God of judgment. Listen to these words in 1 Thessalonians 1. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord. From the glory of his power when he comes in that day. The Bible speaks very clearly of a day that is coming. Christ will come again. He is the judge of all the earth. And it will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of vengeance against his enemies. And judgment will take place. And so Paul warns about this in Romans 2. And he says this, in in light of this, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and his longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God has given you a life here. And the fact that you're not in hell, if you're an unbeliever and you're a sinner just going your own way, God has has been patient with you. He's been forbearing with you. He's been long-suffering. And this goodness of God ought to lead you to repentance, to humbly fall before God and to seek his grace and his forgiveness in Christ. 
But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each according to his deeds. So here are these heavy words of Nahum that this judgment is going to come upon the city of Nineveh, upon this rebellious, wicked people, upon this nation. God's wrath is going to come. In verse 3, he says, the Lord is slow to anger. This is true. He is slow to anger. And he's slow to anger to leave room for repentance. But don't mistake that. The fact that God is slow to anger does not mean that he will not one day demonstrate his anger. Don't be misled by that. A lot of people think that way. Listen to these words of Ecclesiastes 8.11. It says this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given more fully to do evil. Well, God didn't judge me. Uh, he doesn't care, I guess. And what is the heart given over to? Well, it's to, to given over to, to do more sin. That's a mistake to think that way. Though he is slow to anger, he goes on to say, he is great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He will not clear the guilty. And it goes on in this book to speak about the judgment of God that is to come. And we notice in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, it makes these very strong statements. Notice verse uh, 12 of chapter 2. Speaking with regard to Nineveh, the, the, uh, verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I am against you. Notice chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. What a, what a staggering statement. Could there be any worse statement that could be made about someone for the Lord to say, in your rebelliousness, in your sin, I am against you. James says that God is opposed to the proud. He is against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. These are serious words that Nahum speaks here concerning God, who is a God like this, as we saw last week in Micah, and the same here in Naaman. He is a God who is a God of wrath and vengeance, and he will by no means clear the guilty. But as we go through this book, we find little snippets of comfort and help to the people of God. He's going to judge his enemies, their enemies. And this brings comfort to them. Notice chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Here's this massive Assyrian empire that is breathing down their neck how good God is to his people. And he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Here is a great encouragement to those who trust and rest in him. 
As we close this morning and as we come to the Lord's table, we might ask ourselves, well, if God is a God of wrath, he will by no means clear the guilty. How is it that anyone could ever be accepted before such a God as this? And this is where the gospel comes in, isn't it? It is the gospel of the grace of God, that God remains the just God that he is. He doesn't sweep the sin of his people under the carpet. He is a God who justly, he justly strikes his own son who pays the penalty for the guilty. We read in Romans 3 that God remains just and the justifier of all who believe in Christ. As we come to the Lord's table today, this is what we are celebrating. This is what we rejoice in, that Jesus was made to be sin for us. God didn't slack off when it came to our sin. He judged it fully in the person of our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so John says, if anyone confesses their sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we come to the Lord's table today, we come rejoicing in the fact that God's justice has been carried out on our behalf our sins that are many, they have been forgiven because they have been put to the account of Christ if you are in Christ. And Paul makes this amazing statement in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? What an amazing statement. And if you're here in Christ today, as we come to the Lord's table, it's our privilege to remember what he has done for us. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, the book of Nahum is a warning. God will not clear the guilty. There's a day appointed in which he will bring judgment upon your sin and your rebellion as you have gone your own way in rebellion against him. But the call of the gospel today, today is a day of salvation. Come unto me, Jesus says, the savior of sinners, and I will give you rest. The call of the gospel is to turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ and Christ alone. I invite you to take your insert this morning.